By this sign, the Cairo, the barbarian tribes, were vanquished. Through this, the rites of superstitious fraud received a just rebuke. By this, our emperor Constantine, discharging a sacred debt, has performed the crowning good of all by building triumphant church and commanding all to unite in building the sacred houses of prayer. Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. I'm Chad Kim. This line comes from a writing of Eusebius of Caesarea in praise of the first Christian emperor or head of government the world has ever known, Constantine the Great. For some, this is the greatest achievement of Christian history. For others, this represents the beginnings of corruption and is merely a forerunner of Christianity selling its soul for earthly political power. On to debate this very controversial figure are Ben Brannon, Tom Velasco, and Trevor Adams. The work in question is called an oration in praise of Constantine. While the work is not extremely well known, it is an important piece of rhetoric which tells us a great deal about the newly victorious Emperor Constantine, most especially how he fought barbarian tribes under the sign of Christians the Cairo. For the first time in history, Christians have one of their own in the highest position of power in the world. Through the course of time, this will prove to be a precarious position, but in the early 4th century, the Christians were ecstatic to no longer have to worry about government-sanctioned persecution. I hope you enjoy our discussion of Eusebius and Constantine. Please let us know what you think about the podcast on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology. Next week will be our last week with Eusebius as we look at the first ecumenical council of the church, the Council of Nicaea in 325. I will upload a text of the first version of the Nicene Creed to our Facebook page. Here's our conversation. We are reading the Oration and Praise of Constantine by Eusebius of Caesarea. We've just read his ecclesiastical history, his church history, and this is a uh, shorter work that's written to praise Constantine. It's called a panegyric, um, which is sort of an ancient uh, art form, uh, which is meant to be sort of over-the-top and effusive praise. Um, it's two parts, um, and uh, one of them is clearly written for the 30th uh, year of his reign, um, and the other half is a little bit more uh, theological, more quotations from scripture, um, and may have been used in a dedication of a church. Um, so uh, we wanted to talk about this because we have Benjamin Brandon on, who wrote his master's thesis on this very work uh, under Dr. Charles O'Dall at Boise State. And so I will turn it over to Ben to give us a little bit of the sort of um, maybe the ancient uh, um, usages and customs of the panegyric and tell us just a little bit about the genre. Sure. <clears throat> Eusebius is writing in a long tradition um, within the empire. And in fact, the panegyric tradition is a tradition that we know well because we discovered about a dozen panegyric texts in, in what was ancient Gaul, modern France. And we found a lot of principles and similar themes from all these. Almost all of them date to the period of about 300 AD, a little before that, with the um, Roman emperors called, and the Tetrarchy there. That was uh, the emperors that preceded Constantine. And we saw the development of some of these uh, orations or panegyrics, these orations of praise. One feature of them I think that is important is to realize that we have shifted long ago from a notion of a republic and shifted instead to an autocratic, maybe authoritarian uh, imperial rule. And so the orators don't have a lot of freedom to criticize or be critical of the emperor, yet the panegyrics should not simply just be seen as this effusive, um, superfluous praise. What often they accomplish is that they emphasize the ideals of the age. And in fact, the way that they admonish the emperor is by actually claiming he has all these great virtues, even if he doesn't, in a sense saying that you ought to, to be like this. And it's, it's kind of like going to a, a child and being like, yeah, it's so great that you're going to be on top of your room this summer. You're going to keep it nice and clean. you know. And, and so you're, you're saying, here's kind of the expectations that we have. Eusebius uh, as a Christian, will do that much more so in, uh, with an, a theological emphasis. And so it sometimes might seem like this exaltation to the point of idolatry. I think if we study it very closely, he's saying this is what a Christian emperor should look like. And I think it's him, um, yes, recounting the virtues of Constantine, but also saying, um, henceforth, this is a sort of 
model of what uh, Christian uh, empire should be. All right, so that's that's interesting. Yeah, um, I think I think that's helpful, and you actually see a little bit of this in the way that Eusebius writes about the Council of Nicaea, which we will study shortly. Um, actually, I think that's on the docket for next week. And it might seem like we're giving sort of too much weight to this period, uh, to reading Eusebius, who's not one of the, like, he's not often read explicitly as a theologian, which we are here. Um, so I think in, in terms of defending that, um, it can't be overstated how important Constantine was to the changes uh, in the world, which will become a, a more and more Christian world after him. I mean, basically, uh, you know, he is he's the uniter of the East and West at his time. He moves the uh, center of the empire to Co- Constantinople. Uh, you know, the first ecumenical council of the church he oversees. This is the first time in history that Christians have any kind of real political power and, in fact, are the most politically powerful. So, you know, the theology that undergirds this historical move, I think, is critical. I mean, do do either one of you want to say anything in terms of, like, why this might be an important text, even though it's not often read in, in like, sort of theological circles? Well, I mean, a couple of things I would say. I mean, in terms of the... I can't really speak to the importance of the text itself. I mean, I think there's a lot of work that has come out of Constantine's time that you could look at as being very important. And I can't say that I've read this prior to, prior to this particular, uh, you know, gathering for this particular podcast. Um, So I can't really speak to the importance of the text, but I can underscore just the importance of everything you just said, because I mean, I think you could look back in history and try to identify a handful of people who were true paradigm shifters in the history of the world. And I think if you were to list kind of the top 10 or 20, Constantine would have to be right there. Because you literally have a world that is pagan, um, a world in which the power structure is entirely committed to traditional pagan religions uh, rooted in the old Greek mythology, Roman mythology. And, in a, in a blink of an eye, in an instant, it, it immediately turns Christian, and it will remain Christian for, I mean, arguably, you could argue it still is. I mean, you could argue that we still, even though a lot of people would point out that Europe is post-Christian and America is heading kind of post-Christian, we, you nonetheless, West, the Western world is completely enveloped in kind of this, uh, in a culture that it can't help but have Christian structures surrounding it. But politically, for sure, Europe is distinctly Christian uh, until World War I. I mean, officially Christian. That's not to say that, you know, you didn't have, of course, ebbs and flows. You, of course, have situations like the, uh, uh, when, the when the Muslims invaded Spain and conquered Spain. And, of course, you have a, a very secularization a movement of secularization in Europe starting in the 1600s. So you have all of that stuff, but politically and culturally Europe and America after them will be Christian. And all of this goes back to Constantine. It's just one continuous loop. There's no, there's a no, no ebb of that. I mean, it's Constantine makes the world Christian pretty much. Could I jump in on that? I I think um, that absolutely Constantine is this, this turning point. Um, Yet part of the importance of this document is, especially for Western Christians, i.e. Uh, like Western Europe, Protestants, and, and, uh, and the Catholics in the Western tradition, is a peek into this world that is the real um, home of early Christianity, which is the East. It's the Hellenistic East, meaning it's, it's the Greek East. And this is a very foreign thing to many of us in the West. And... Uh, it's not simply the Orthodox Church that I'm speaking of. It was the original church where all of the great um, councils began and where all the great bishoprics began. So although Constantine did uh, make the church political, uh, in the East, Christianity was incredibly strong and incredibly vibrant, um, yet it was going through a syncretism, to use uh, this, this cultural word, a syncretism with the Near East and with the Greek traditions. And so I think the reason that this document is so important that Eusebius gives is I believe after having studied it in, in depth that it represents a culmination of a, uh, when I say syncretism, of a mix uh, or a combination of these influences. And so to sum up 
the importance of this. Alexander the Great, hundreds of years before uh, Christ, he, he was 300 BC, Constantine's 300 AD. Alexander the Great swept through this area of uh, the Near East and brought the Greek language. Well, not just that, he was mentored by Aristotle and brought all these Greek ideas, and uh, including Platonism. What we see in Eusebius's panegyric here is Christian Platonism at its finest. We see uh, the tradition that had been begun with Philo Judaeus, Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, and especially Origen that you guys had discussed. Now we see Eusebius writing a sort of philosophy of history on that, and uh, it's, it's powerful. He's writing this template, so to speak, of divine kingship that dates all the way back to Alexander. And so in the thesis that I wrote, I showed all this, the passages and all the terminology that he used that was used by the Hellenistic kings, the Greek kings that followed Alexander. So when Tom talked about these paradigm shifters, Alexander's near the top of the list. Um, he shifted the paradigm from the Greek republics to, to uh, Greek kingship. But the kingship started to become divine kingship in the ancient Near East. And so there's actually not just Greek, but Persian influences, Babylonian influences, and Egyptian influences. All of this gets, I'm just going to use the word mixed, it gets mixed together in what we call syncretism. And Eusebius is showing this massive syncretism with the ancient Near East in his Christian uh, model now, this Christian Platonic model. But so, he's, also, he's also revolutionizing the way of thinking Eusebius is in this document because you know, I, I like your description there of syncretism. I, I kind of envisioned when you were talking like a mixing bowl uh, where you're dumping all of these elements in because um, Alexander's Macedonian and the Macedonians had a long storied history of kingship. But Alexander first conquers Greece, which, of course, Athens and Athenian democracy was kind of the ultimate paradigm to the Greeks. But then he moves into the Levant and he conquers Syria and Palestine and then down into Egypt and then finally into Persia where you have these absolute monarchs who have uh, kind of this, this deist, this deity deification kind of underlying them where people worship these monarchs and Alexander embraces that. So it's a mixing bowl of Greek, Macedonian, Egyptian, Persian, everything kind of joined together. And you definitely see that with Eusebius for sure. You see him drawing on all of these elements, but then you also see him, by bringing he, – he just adds Christianity into the mix. And in doing so, he, of course, subverts a number of those elements. Like he very clearly is paying homage to his king, Constantine, in a way that, that panegyrists before him would have. But he also is saying things like, like, but you, Constantine, are like the rest of us. We look at you in awe, but you, of course, recognize that your position isn't anything special, that – that you are like a shepherd. Um, in fact, you are just a shepherd. It's just that your job is more burdensome. That, of course, if you had your way, you would prefer uh, to, to, you know, well, I don't know that he specifically says this, but I felt like he was implying that if Constantine had his way, he wouldn't even want to be king anymore. And so you take this traditional notion of Roman kingship and you mix it with this notion of Christian humility and, of course, the teaching of Jesus that the greatest of you will be the least and, and all of that. And you, you come up with a very interesting concoction. Yeah, once – okay, so, all right, let's, let's dive into some of the more controversial bits. Um, so we've been using this word syncretism, um, and, you know, oftentimes syncretism is used with sort of a cutting evaluative edge syncretism is something bad that happens, right? So, I mean, as it's normally conceived, or at least are often I hear it used, I mean, syncretism is a blending, but it's usually a, a, almost a corruption. Um, and I know that Ben went back and forth between mixing and syncretism, and Tom just kept using the word mixing. But we, we might ask, um, I've mentioned Adolf von Harnack in this podcast before, but von Harnack and others, um, and not the least of which also N.T. Wright, uh, has questioned the undue influence of Platonism uh, on Christian theology. So one point that he makes towards the end, um, chapter 16, he says, for uh, just echoing some of the stuff we've said, Chapter 16, part five, for before this time, the various countries of the world, Syria, Asia, Macedonia, Egypt, Arabia, had been subject to different rulers. The Jewish people established dominion of Palestine, um, but they were engaged in murderous and incessant war. 
But two mighty powers from the same point, the Roman Empire, which was swayed by a single sovereign, and the Christian religion subdued and reconciled these contending elements. So interestingly here, Eusebius basically says the the syncretism, as we've been saying it, or the mixing, um, is not actually between Judaism and Christianity, but rather Ro- the Roman Empire and Christianity. And one might wonder if this isn't actually a corruption of of what um, Jesus uh, and the early disciples were actually teaching. Um, does he want to unite the Roman Empire um, with Christian religion? Is that the vision of, of Matthew 28, of the um, Great Commission? Um, is that when he sends them out into the world to say, okay, unite this very earthly kingdom with my heavenly kingdom? Um, I mean, maybe I'm being hard on Eusebius here, but this is where I have a, like where I struggle, um, you know, with this with using this word syncretism, because there's a lot that I love about Roman culture. There's a lot I love about Greek philosophy, uh, which I I'm not saying has no place in a Christian's life or in a Christian worldview. Uh, but but this question of syncretism is always a question of lines and, and how far, how far do we go? How much can we bring it into our worldview? And I read that part of chapter five and I just wondered, or chapter 16, part five, and I just wondered, has he gone too far? Well, one thing I would just kind of add to kind of clarify, maybe in the minds of our listeners, this issue, I think that a lot of the question you're raising, it's not just about scholars like Harnack or Wright. A lot of it has to do with the traditions we come from. So coming out of Protestantism into even like modern evangelicalism, the fundamental assumption is that we need to burn away the elements that have corrupted Christianity that have entered in and go back to the original authentic Christianity. And that is in general what Protestants, what evangelicals, and what various different movements that have grown up out of Christianity, uh, like movements that we might identify as cultic, um, like the LDS church or something, everybody is trying to go back to the original, at least according to their narrative, to their story. We want to boil everything down to just Jesus. But if you're Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, um, they, I think, approach the question entirely differently. They look at it as, look, we have a living theology that kind of evolves through time. And, and so, um, and maybe 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 that's a little maybe they wouldn't say it exactly like that, but nonetheless, the history and how things in fact progress matters in the theological question. So I think your question has a lot to do with who's answering it. Sure, that's a perfectly fair point. Um, and to be, to be fair, it's I mean sometimes it depends on which Roman Catholic theologian you're discussing because they too. But, but they too have a view of sort of a purity in the original insofar as it was given to Peter. It's just an extrapolation from that, which we will get into a little bit later. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a good point. It's a good thing to remember. I definitely come out of the Protestant tradition. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so as, I'm do, going, as do me and Ben. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm, so, so Ben, uh, what do you have a, you have a thought on that? Absolutely. Um, I understand that syncretism can be used negatively. Um, I think, however, um, it, there's a strong argument to say not only is it positive, but it's part of the divine plan. And uh, if we had an hour long to go over the history of Judaism and so forth, we could see that there. Um, in brief, we mentioned last time that in addition to David being the anointed one of the kingdom of Israel, and that term in Hebrew is Messiah, um, we see Cyrus the Great of Persia called the Messiah very explicitly by Isaiah in uh, 40:44. So the reason I want to suggest that is what we're going to see is, is uh, a lot of Christians would like the Bible to be in this nice, neat box, completely sterilized from any contaminating influence from the outside world. And that's just not the case. It's just not. And so uh, a great study of the history is to see how, if you believe in, in God's province, how he used Egypt, how he used Mesopotamia, how he used Greece and Rome uh, to promote the gospel. And so what Eusebius does, and the reason that I um, not just, I don't just have appreciation for this, but I think a lot of his ideas are, are valid and, and powerful theological ideas, is he's taking the best of these traditions and showing how they point to Christianity. So syncretism in its negative sense would be maybe pulling Christianity back down to like pagan notions. 
but the very best of it would to take these pagan notions and say, look, these are fulfilled. When you look for this, um, the, the sage king that Plato talks about, well, Christ is the sage king. You're trying to take the Platonists and point them up uh, and not bring them down. So when you, the passage you just read in 16, that's excellent, uh, Chad. Chad always finds the, these, these key points. In 16, he looks at the Roman Empire and Christianity beginning at the same time. This is the biggest coincidence in history that the shift from the Republic to the empire occurred right when uh, Christ was born. And uh, our, our, our timeline reflects that. Well, what Eusebius is writing is that what we had before that was polyarchy. Like there's monarchy. Polyarchy means many governments, just as you had polytheism. So polytheism, many gods, and polyarchy, many governments, happened in the first stage. And with the coming of Rome and with Christianity, we see this mass shift to monarchy and monotheism. And so he's saying that this isn't a coincidence, that this is part of the preparation of the coming of Christ, is that people begin to look to a king, and not just any king, they have expectations of a divine king. And Alexander the Great began this tradition. He himself was not the Messiah, but he began everyone in the Near East, including the Greeks now, to look for the divine king. When Christ comes, then he fulfills this in an amazing way. And uh, it's not the way that people expected as the warrior king. So when he's speaking to Constantine, as, as uh, Tom mentioned a few of these, he's calling him the good shepherd. He's calling him the beloved of God. He's calling him Constantine a heaven-sent administrator insofar as he follows. And here's the key word of the entire panegyric that weaves it all together. Insofar as he follows the logos, or in the Greek, logos, which is the word of God as translated by John. This Logos theology is the center point of Eusebius' panegyric and that which ties together um, all the Greek thought of the Near East all the way back to Plato. Um, Plato would use the word to talk about divine reason, and here we see it as God's, God's word. But it's the Logos that um, controls and dictates to Constantine his orders, and of course the Logos is Christ in Christian thought. I'd just like to add just something Ben said there. Yeah, this is from chapter 3 of section six, uh, just to kind of show how Eusebius is doing some of this. Eusebius says, and surely monarchy far transcends every other constitution and form of government for that democratic equality of power, which is its opposite may rather be described as anarchy and disorder. Hence there is one God, not two, not three or more for to assert a plurality of gods is plainly to deny there being a God at all. So too, there is one sovereign and his word and royal law is one, a law not expressed in syllables and words, not written or engraved on tablets, and therefore subject to the ravages of time, but the living self-subsisting word who himself is God. And so I find that pretty interesting because he essentially is saying that law is embodied in an individual. And of course, God's law is embodied in the person of Christ, the word of God, not in the written word, in the personal word. And so too, he's implying that by analogy, the Roman government is the best kind of government because, or I, I shouldn't say the Roman government per se, but monarchy is the best form of government of which the Roman government partakes because it has one individual in whom is the law. So the law is the person. And so he's saying, isn't it obvious that, that Constantine is clearly God's emissary on earth? And, and, and so he's, again, I think, subverting the the notion of, of monarchy that came out of Alexander, uh, out of Alexander's establishment, uh, to this idea not of the monarch being God, but the idea of the monarch being God's representative. And of course, I think very interestingly, and this is something we could talk about, his criticism of democracy. He doesn't give a long um, philosophical criticism. He just says it's anarchical. He says democracy. The word is polyarchy that I mentioned. Oh, in, the monarchy. in Greek, it's polyarchy, not, not democracy. Oh, interesting. Well, okay. So fair enough. Like I'm not here to defend democracy. I mean, the state of democracy in America, <laughs> um, I mean, if any, you know, scares me to death anyway. So, but nevertheless, do we, I mean, so this is the problem that I have. Every time I read Constantine, like I read all the things that Ben's, or read about Constantine, I should say, because um, I don't think as far as we know, he wrote anything. Um, but... What's that? You wrote many letters um, and okay. showed a lot of his piety in the letters that you wrote. Okay, so letters. Thanks, Ben. Um, 
But, you know, it's, so at one point, uh, let's see, chapter 9 here, uh, part 8, author of his victory, he proclaimed this triumphant sign, which is presumably the Cairo, by monuments as well as world to all mankind, erecting it as a mighty trophy against every enemy, um, and expressly enjoining all to acknowledge his imperish- this imperishable symbol of salvation as the safeguard of the power of Rome and of the empire of the world. And he goes on to talk about, uh, by this sign, the bi- and this is part 12, by this sign, the barbarian tribes were vanquished. Okay, so here we have uh, you know, just a further depiction of, to me, what looks like tremendous irony. Because, I mean, when I look at the cross of Jesus Christ, I don't see a sign by which we're meant to vanquish our enemies and our foes by the sword. Like if you put the Cairo on a sword and then plunge it into a barbarian's chest, um, to me, that's the very like distortion of the gospel um, where a guy lays down his life um, so that others might take it rather than taking the life of another. Uh, Like, I mean, to me, this just gives the roadmap for the Crusades, uh, you know, some of the, you know, the worst um, distortions of Christian truth uh, that the world has ever known. Uh, So how, I mean, how can a Christian read what Eusebius is writing about here, read about the Constantinian settlement and say, oh, yeah, this is great. This is a perfect world. I mean, it it should be pointed out that here there has been a fundamental paradigm shift within the church because the previous theologians, just as a way of reminder to our listeners that we have read, were almost universally pacifists. And they were certainly, um, although they were not opposed to government and they were not for bringing down governments, they seemed to be opposed to, I'm trying to think of how to word it. I mean, obviously they believed that they had a government that ruled over them and they should be obedient, but they were opposed to being involved in the governments of Rome. And with Constantine, Constantine, you have a fundamental shift. Now I, I, for me, I mentally kind of go two different ways with this one. I do. A lot of people question Constantine's sincerity. They think Constantine converted because it was uh, it was a utilitarian uh, cause that, that it, it benefited him. I have never understood how it could really benefit him. I mean, the arguments I've heard seem specious to me. I, I, it seems to me that he was sincere in his, in his beliefs. Um, and of course, if you're an emperor, you can't not fight wars. So you have to come up with a whole new theology surrounding warfare. Now, I myself, I am no pacifist. At the same time, I am distinctly opposed to the militaristic... Uh, tenor that Christianity, I think, begins to adopt starting at this time with Constantine uh, carrying through the Middle Ages, obviously into the Crusades and and even into the modern era. I mean, um, Christianity in America is definitely associated with nationalism and with uh, warmongering, etc. So, you know, I, I think you raise a valid question in that. I think there are two different questions in terms of Constantine's sincerity versus the effect. But I think, I think this is a really big and difficult topic that you could never resolve in one day, but I, I think you raise a really good question. Well, I want to yeah, respond to this. This is, as always, Chad, you're great at picking these huge topics that we would need <laughs> hours to discuss. But um, briefly put, I'm not going to get into the Crusades right now, but I'm a little disappointed that we would look at that as kind of the modern depiction of that as this great atrocity by Christians when it was the Seljuk Turks who were raping and pillaging all across the Byzantine Empire. And in desperation, the first crusade was launched to try to stem that tide. But we're not going to get into the crusades right now. Uh, But that's kind of used as a, a, I don't know, a strong man sometimes. What we can talk about, though, is that um, what what role does the military play in a state? And I think that Christians sometimes can take the teachings of Christ, which says turn the other cheek, um, undeniably, and um, maybe conflate that with the policy of a state. And if we're going to argue that there is a role for a state, as our Augustine does do, Augustine himself begins to formulate what will become <coughs> just war theory in the West. And Thomas Aquinas uh, kind of codifies this. Um, Augustine's going a little bit off of Cicero and some of his. In fact, you might know this better than I, Chad, but Augustine writes a letter to one of his friends who was a soldier saying, this is during the barbarian invasions, by the way. Um, And Augustine tells the guy, stay at your post. 
because his friend had wanted to retire to a monastery. And Augustine says, no, you have a duty to preserve uh, the peace of the empire. So when Eusebius writes of Constantine, this is how he phrases it. He says the supreme sovereign, that's God, he, God outstretched his arm in judgment on the adversaries and utterly uh, destroyed them with a stroke of divine wrath. This is God's doing. The judgment was carried out by an invincible champion, the Hoplitea Marcon, uh, like a hoplite warrior. The, uh, and so he's saying that God is committing this. Uh, Licinius and the persecuting emperors had this coming to them. They were going to get crushed by God's divine wrath. And Constantine was merely a chosen instrument of that. And of course, this is in line with the Old Testament God who we see um, operating at the level of a state, the state of Israel. And of course, David goes and kills Goliath and it's a great victory and it glorifies God. So if we have a, the mindset of a nation state or of a, of a government, we start seeing that there's an argument as many of the best theologians have made for just war theory. And I think Eusebius is in the very proto stages of that. In fact, he precedes Augustine by 100 years with a certain just war theory. Man, yeah, close to 100 years. Well, um, okay, so yeah, there is a place of war. I mean, I will say that, um, I, I mean, I, I can see where you're coming from on, on that. I mean, I tend, to, if, if, it wasn't, uh, if it wasn't obvious, uh, I tend to lean more pacifistic. Uh, so, uh, you know, so this is always deeply troubling for me. I mean, just as it's troubling for me to read Just War Theory and, uh, and Aquinas and um, and, and the beginnings of it in, in Augustine as well. But, um, you yeah, know, we don't have to, we don't have to dis- discuss the merits of, of war itself. It's just, it's just, it, it's when I read stuff like that, um, it's just hard for me to imagine, um, conquering, uh, in the name of Christ, which leads me to the question that I, one of the questions that I had for this text so I can understand how um, it's important to un- like you know all the stuff that I do is a little bit about background and let's 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 figure out the context. But the other question is, do we see this as prescriptive or descriptive? Like, so when Ben reads this uh, or when I read this, should should I be thinking to myself, this is kind of a roadmap for how Christians um, should engage with the world politically? Uh, do we look for one strong monarch to unite the world as Constantine did once then? Or do we say, well, that was 1700 years ago. No. <laughs> um, like, how do we, how do we read this? Is this prescriptive? Is this what we should do? Or is this sort of a, the ideal government? Well, and before we go there, I would like to add something just thinking about, because again, I said earlier, I'm not a pacifist, but um, that having, been, I, I say that because it seems to me that there are instances when fighting is inevitable and necessary, and where the the virtuous thing to do probably is fighting. That having been said, I'm deeply suspicious of almost all fighting, right? Yeah. Um, and and it seems that, I mean, I, it, it's pretty standard fare to try to say that turn the other cheek is not meant to apply to nations, and I think that's fair in a sense. Although I think there's probably a corollary, um, probably a corollary uh, set of virtues that you could put in place for a nation, where a nation could kind of, um, without being truly pacifist, could nonetheless kind of display a dovish uh, sensibility and not uh, prioritize fighting and, and try to only engage in fighting when absolutely necessary. But uh, you know, it seems to me that one of the things that people cannot help but be deeply suspicious about our ulterior motives, selfishness, all of those kinds of things. This is what comes up with the Iraq war invasion, right? Um, it's one of the things that, that caused a lot of people to question president Bush. He uses as a justification for the war, the presence of, of, you know, uh, weapons of mass destruction. And I'm not saying he, he did this. I, I personally don't have, Uh, I I probably have a more positive view of President Bush than most people. So I'm not saying he did this on purpose, but culturally there's no question that when it was found that there were no weapons of mass destruction, people said, oh, he lied and this was just a ruse to get us into into the country so that he could, you know, accomplish some selfish aim. Now, you know, so for instance, now I do bring this up with Constantine. You referenced uh, the fight with Licinius as a persecuting emperor. Um, You know, I'm by no means an expert on these fronts, and I certainly have not read the source material thoroughly enough, although I've gone through my share of 
mean, I took 12 classes from O'Dahl, et cetera, et cetera, uh, myself and read some books. But there's certainly contrasting narratives on why Constantine fought Licinius. And one narrative that people bring up is that Licinius being, uh, was, was firmly in support of the Edict of Milan and wanted a policy of toleration, and that Constantine just wanted to take the whole empire. So he created um, ruses, basically, so that he could fight Licinius, put him down, and justify his taking over the entire empire as you know, the absolute monarch or whatever. I, I don't say that that's true. I just say that that is an alternative narrative. I believe it's the more commonly accepted narrative. I don't think that makes it true either. I think it's pretty common for modern scholars to be probably overly suspicious of the winners in history. But nonetheless, that's a narrative that's out there that I can't say is wrong. And so there's this part of me which goes, here we have a Christian emperor who is being praised as this hand of God, this tool of God, who also may not be that at all, but might have just been self, might have selfishly killed a man who actually was favoring uh, the Edict of Milan, which is an Edict of Toleration, just so that he could increase power. And so all of these things, I think, rightly make us, uh, I, I think, doubtful of some of these issues. And I, it seems to me that most of the theologians we've read thus far, now granted, they were persecuted, they were not in power. So how, would things have changed if they realized there was an emperor, a Christian emperor, perhaps? But they seem to have a hands-off mentality. Um, we are not going to concern ourselves with whether the government fights wars. We, as individuals, are not. We Christians are going to prioritize this Christian kingdom, and we're going to let whatever government happens to be reigning, reign. And we will live out the virtue that we've been called to. And so I just, you know, it seems to me that that's a legitimate thing that we as Christians can, can consider today. I'm going to respond to that. That's great. I appreciate the way Tom can relate that to a present mindset. And I think that's always important that we try to understand the context of the, of the ancient world. There's a lot of uh, interesting points he's brought up just to tie this back into what Chad said as well about the prescriptive versus descriptive. I think that one way to answer this is that Eusebius um, is not merely, Eusebius is almost saying both because I believe his view would be that this is what God has done. This is what God has done. And so when Chad asked, is this something that we ought to seek? Ought we to seek a monarch who is maybe will be militaristic and, and et cetera? Um, I think Eusebius would answer, that's, it, we, are, we should follow what God has done. Um, God anointed David to be king of Israel. Should we seek a David? Well, because God anointed him, then yes. And so Eusebius is seeing an anointing uh, in a sense of Constantine. Now, this helps us understand the Licinius situation, because as we mentioned earlier, if we're seeing um, polyarchy, that, that's the word he uses for the democracy, divided government, that is an effect of polytheism. And Licinius, he did honor the Edict of Milan, but that was probably a political maneuver as well, because shortly thereafter, he began um, persecuting some of the churches and closing them down, and in addition to just ungodly practices of uh, raping nobles' wives and so forth. He, he set up a harem of nobles' wives. My only point saying that is he, he was not a godly man, Licinius, even to the sources in the East. Nor so, was Constantine for that matter. <laughs> What's that? Nor was Constantine for that matter. Uh, we could, I think that's more debatable. I, I think he, he blundered in areas. but I would, I would add just to, to that last point you made. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I'm not saying that's, that you're wrong with that, mm-hmm. but I've definitely read plenty which says – those are just propaganda by Constantine. He, Licinius never did those things. Those were things that Constantine did to, to justify or warn. I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying that is a possible, and it's not something that people who, that's something that people who deal with, um, I, I'm trying, with yeah. skepticism about government yeah. could go, yeah, I could totally see that. To be honest, I think there's something to that. When, yeah. you, read, when you read this, you're like, is he, is he coming up with a causus belly, an excuse? Yeah. My, my bigger point is this, though, is a divided government is what Eusebius is saying is the root cause that that a government divided will inevitably go to war. Like it's a theological point he's making, which right, is interesting. Right. It's like having two gods fight. He's like, look, one day the gods are going to clash and the supreme god will triumph. That's actually Constantine's uh, pre-Christian view. He was looking for the uh, highest god, and he was saying that one will lead to the greatest victory. And sure enough, <laughs> he, he banked on the right god. So, so Eusebius' point is that we need unity, and we'll see this. Uh, to kind of set up for next week with Constantine's 
um, church uh, administration. He's going to call for unity within the church, just as he sought unity within the empire. And if there's one theme that we leave off with with Constantine, it is that unity and having half the empire following a man that may not be um, godly or consistent with the other half. Um, I think Eusebius would say that was reason for war. And to, just to back that up, David fought against Abner, the um, general of Saul, for a decade. A decade, Judah, Judah fought against Israel in the north, a civil war. Why? Because uh, a divided monarchy is going to constantly fight itself. And so until it had peace, until David took control of uh, all Israel, there was not peace in the land. And so I think that, um, again, if we look at the Old Testament for some insight on, on the uh, structure of nation states and God's role there, I think it does shed light on this Constantinian uh, model. Well, we could ask some questions about sort of um, like the perfect and permissive will, which is like a, 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 a Calvinistic way to talk about God's will. Uh, but it is clear that he's not real excited about giving the Israelites a king. Um, and so um, my only retort would be something like, well, God clearly wasn't super excited about uh, Saul becoming king. But he was like, well, if you have to have one, here you go. Yeah, but conversely, he does seem to be, I don't know if excited is the word, he seems to be very much in a state of approbation or approval of David being king. So he seems to not be happy with the choice of a king initially. Then you have Saul, who clearly is meant to be kind of a negative, right? Mm -hmm. God says, you ask for a king, fine, I'll give you a king king you want. I'm giving you Saul. Mm -hmm. But then David seems to be his choice. Um, And so I think you could raise the question of whether or not, I I don't know, I I do think that it's not entirely clear. Um, I think if you read the the first Samuel 12 through 15 section alone, it would seem that God is opposed to this notion of a monarchy. But then when you read the rest of the, Mm -hmm. the rest of the, the the books of the kingdoms, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, it seems that he is in fact, um, in favor of a king. Although I think you can follow that narrative further because if you take David and his line, mm-hmm. it terminates in the one king, which is Jesus, which is God himself, which was his initial criticism, right? Because his initial criticism of the Israelites was, I am your king. But they wanted a king, a human, that they could follow. So what does God give them at the end of it all? He gives them himself as a human, as a king, a literal king. Awesome. Great, great answer, Tom. Uh, yes, yeah, Saul represents always what the people want. When Saul defies Samuel's um, admonition, um, Saul said, yes, but I was afraid of what the people thought. You know, it's always what the people thought. When Paul writes in Acts 13 and he says, David sought after the complete and entire will of God and had a heart after God's own heart. That's like a, that's like a mini version of the panegyric. Is that true? You know, did David, you know, when he killed Uriah, was that really, um, was he perfect? No, he wasn't. But the essence of what uh, Paul's getting at is that David was appointed um, by God. And of course, as as Tom just mentioned, the royal line, the divine kingship will come from David's line. I think Eusebius is saying something similar, to be honest. And he's saying, yes, God has chosen Constantine to bring about uh, the Christian um, world in, in the Roman Empire. Well, at the risk of just totally derailing us to another topic, I couldn't help but get in one more plug for why I'm so excited to read uh, Augustine by the end of the summer. Um, <laughs> in chapter 12, uh, I, all I could think of when uh, uh, Eusebius compares God the Father and the Holy Spirit, or excuse me, God the Father and God the Son, uh, as in a very... Uh, sort of Eastern way talks about the importance of, of Jesus being the perfect word of God coming sort of from his mind uh, in a way. Um, he basically says that humans are composed of only two parts um, and the inner part being their, their rationality. Um, but there's no notion of will. Um, and, and additionally, there's no notion of the Holy Spirit. So um, one of the most interesting things about when Augustine writes about the Trinity um, is that he's actually also writing about psychology. Um, and he adds it, basically one of his great contributions is this notion of will um, in addition to um, mind and um, and passions. And so, um, so there is um, – 
you know, so anyway, one deficiency that I found, you know, that I find in, in Eusebius and that we should, we will look at when we look at the Nicene Creed is this lack of a discussion of the Holy Spirit, which plays no role um, in this oration um, and plays very little role um, in the first um, edition of the Nicene Creed, which gets, it's not said this way, basically gets updated um, in Constantinople in 381. Um but uh, but yeah. So anyway, just another plug for why uh, Augustine is better than Eusebius, and to get a dig in on that. <laughs> well, a couple things on that is is Eusebius of Caesarea um, is going to be. Oh man. Okay. So the the Eastern bishops did not want to be called Arians, and so we'll talk about this next time. But um, they were they preferred being originists, following oh. origin, and so Eusebius was absolutely an originist, um, and so he's actually going. <laughs> to get um oh he's not excommunicated but he was on like probation i'm trying to think of the word for that he got a little bit in trouble because we're about to get to the arian controversy which we're talking about next week uh with my council nicaea and so yeah so we're gonna see this tension um begin and his faction he was one of the leaders of the you know the originists uh were really at in conflict with what um we'll call the um niceans now you know so, so that, that'll be a great debate for next time is, is the, the originist view of the Trinity and so forth. And like I said, I was just having fun with that. Yeah. Because I'm supposed to be the Augustan scholar. Right. <laughs> I, I cannot understate enough for our listeners how excited I am about getting to Augustine. So definitely, guys, spread the word. Augustine's coming. Awesome. So, I mean... If you haven't read Augustine, you need to read Augustine. Actually, you need to read everybody we've been reading. But <laughs> you definitely need to be reading Augustine. Um, <laughs> I do think that this issue of our involvement in the state and in warfare as Christians and what our take on that should be is a very confusing one. And I think people people put up a lot of really, I say, straw man arguments to kind of do, to 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 uh, defend their positions, I had this I had this same discussion yesterday with a friend of mine who is a who is a actually a former student who is now studying at West Point, and we were discussing World War II, and and we were talking about the president's recent trip to Japan, and and obviously it's been in the news a lot the whole Pearl Harbor issue, and it's like there are people on both or not Pearl Harbor I apologize the the dropping of the atomic bomb. And, you know, the fact is, is that the United States government is the only government that has ever dropped an atomic bomb on people. And you have two sides to this, to this debate. One side takes it as, an, as, an, as a given that the use of atomic weaponry is wrong. It's morally wrong. Um, I think you could flesh that out a little further by saying things like um, any kind of weapon that, that takes no account for the loss of innocent life or civilian life is wrong, or you can flush that out in a lot of ways, but the counter argument is a utilitarian argument, which essentially goes something like this. If we had invaded the Island of Japan, the U S army would have lost a million lives within the first six months. And that's just the first, that's just American lives. That's nothing about the carnage that would result in Japan. There was this firm belief that it would be a fight to the death. That is, that we would fight until Japan was gone. And so from that vantage point, the use of a gigantic bomb as a posture uh, or a display of power to essentially scare them into submission is considered a humane response. Now, I'm not advocating either position. I'm only pointing out that this is a, this is a really complex issue. And as a Christian, like I could see somebody easily saying, look, we follow Jesus, and what would Jesus say about dropping an atomic bomb? Terrible. Um, but at the same time, when you deal with the issue of World War II and the atrocities committed, not just by the Germans, but by the Japanese as well in China and in Southeast Asia, you have to ask yourself what our responsibility is in those, in those centers as Christians. I don't have an answer, please. I, I, this is what I myself am wrestling with trying to filter through this. And how does this relate? Well, I think it relates to the fact, or relate, I should say, to the Eusebius panegyric, how does it relate to that? I think it relates in this sense. 
in the first three centuries of Christianity, well, the first four, really, the first four centuries of Christianity, you have a world in which Christians are distinctly separate from the government. And thus they have made a decision not to concern themselves with governmental decision-making. They are concerned only with living their lives and being faithful. But now what do you do when your emperor becomes a Christian? And he still has to concern himself with the empire, which is bigger than just, I I shouldn't say bigger, but it includes people who are not Christian. And it includes a polity that needs to be defended in various things. Like, what do you do? And that applies to us now as we have an election looming large and we have people running for office. And as Christians, we have to make decisions about not only who we vote for, but also how involved we're supposed to be in the political process. Some Christians say we need to abdicate altogether. We need to be like those first, those Christians in the first four centuries. We need to not be involved in politics. Some say we need to, to basically, it's almost like a the, theocracy. We need to, to take the, the government through election and, you know, basically create a Christian government. And, you know, I suspect the truth lies somewhere in between those two. But at the same time, it's a difficult thing to work through. And it's something all Christians should be thinking about. And I think we should not be satisfied with the straw man and the red herring arguments that we, that people present on Facebook all day. I, I, I think that there are some very strong principles of just war theory. And so if we're talking about specifics, those principles don't get addressed too often. For example, war should be fought for the sake of peace. And and Tom mentioned that with Japan. And so I think that um, as Christians, if they're defending Christians from being uh, ravaged, I think that is a just uh, cause. It's, It's a happy coincidence, or as Eusebius says, not a coincidence at all, that the Pax Romana presided over the growth period of Christians. So, of course, they don't have to fight in the military because they have legions on the frontiers defending them. Um, If it wasn't for that, as we see the Parthians quickly uh, blow through the borders and could have destroyed an early Christian movement. But it was ordained that there was a the most powerful military in the world was protecting the Christians for for its uh, period of growth. Yes, there was persecution, but they didn't have to fight because uh, they were being protected. And I think that Augustine really offers one of the strongest answers for this as in calling the, the state, how, how do we say it, Chad? Like a, a sort of necessary evil. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, something, something like that. Yeah. So is war a necessary evil perhaps? And I think that even the, the, the notion of not killing innocents, we have to really, we're challenged when Samuel tells Saul that it's the will of God to wipe out the Amalekites uh, man, woman, child, and, and all the goats and, and, and stuff as well. And so Samuel, or excuse me, Saul was rejected as a king because he didn't do that. And granted, Christ's revelation is a fuller revelation, and that's a huge topic. But I think that it is um, important for us to look at the way that uh, the Old Testament deals with a nation state and say that maybe there are certain principles of a nation state that we can derive from that. All right. Well, we I think we're we worked on an hour here, so I think that's probably pretty good. Thanks for listening. We will be back next week with the Council of Nicaea.